This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Craig Childs discusses his new book, Atlas of a Lost World, Travels in Ice Age America. Then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese explores the recent Authors Guild legal settlement. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by NPD BookScan. Well, there's a lot happening over in nonfiction this week. Yes. I'll, I'll just jump right in. Yeah, go ahead. Um, we, number one cookbook, Magnolia Table, a collection of recipes for gathering by uh, Joanna Gaines. Uh, Gaines opened up a restaurant in Waco, Texas called Magnolia Table. And here, Joe, as she goes, believes there's no better way to celebrate family and friendship than through the art of togetherness, celebrating traditions, sharing a great meal. So that's it, number one. I didn't expect to see that there, but... But I'm very glad for her. At number five, uh, we have War on Peace by Ronan Farrow. Farrow is a former State Department official, now a New Yorker journalist. The review says uh, war has eclipsed diplomacy as the main instrument of U.S. foreign policy with dire consequences, according to uh, Farrow. We say Farrow doesn't quite demonstrate how diplomacy would succeed in quagmires like uh, Afghanistan, but his indictment of the militarization of America forward policy is persuasive. So that's what we have at number five. At number seven, we have The Light Within Me by Ainsley Earhart. Earhart is the Fox News person and a New York Times bestselling author of a previous book, which was a children's book, Take Heart, My Child. We don't have a review of this, but according to the press material, she drew on her childhood and inspirational notes uh, her father wrote before uh, school each morning. And here uh, is insightful political coverage, including a sit down with Melania Trump. Uh, and this, again, is according to their uh, the, the, uh, the publicity info. Then we have at number nine, Suicide of the West, How the Rebirth of Tribalism populism, nationalism, and identity politics is destroying American democracy. Excuse me, by Jonah Goldberg. Goldberg is the National Review senior editor and syndicated columnist. We don't have a review of that. Another cookbook, number 11, Once Upon a Chef, the cookbook, 100 Tested, Perfected, and Family-Approved Recipes by uh, Jennifer Siegel. And uh, here she's got one marriage and two kids later. She created Once Upon a Chef. Uh, comes from her blog. She applies chef skills to cooking for family and that's at number 11 number 14 one i was excited to see on here uh rick bragg the best cook in the world tales from my mama's table again we gave this a starred review and we say for southerners notes bragg uh his big book was all over but the shouting one of them anyway every recipe is a story not simply a list of ingredients and he candidly shares the stories of the meals of his mother's alabama upbringing and and here he evokes the cornbread carrot and red cabbage slaw, creamed onions, and and the impression it made on his mother serving it and on him growing up. We say that Bragg's entertaining memoir is a test 
estimate that cooking and food still matter. Uh, number 15, finally, we have Kind is the New Classy, The Power of Living Graciously by Candace Cameron Bure. Bure, who's the actress and producer, explains in this encouraging book how she learned that women can make a meaningful impact on the world by choosing to be kind. And that's what we have on the nonfiction. So what do we have on fiction? On fiction, there's not nearly so much. Uh, David Baldacci is still sitting pretty at number one after mm. uh, last week. Sold another 32,000 units this week. But we do have a new number two, Twisted Prey by John Sandford, uh, just behind Baldacci with about 28,000 hardcover copies mm. sold, according to NPD Bookscan. We gave this a starred review, which is very impressive, given that it's the 28th novel in wow. the Lucas Davenport series. Um, Sandford just keeps turning them out and uh, continues to do a great, great job mm. with this thriller series. Uh, and this one focuses on investigation involving a former U.S. senator uh, who is being driven by a political consultant when a pickup truck plows into their vehicle. Mm. And there's some concern that this was an actual assassination attempt. Uh, so we say uh, Davenport, and uh, who's now a U.S. marshal, goes up against uh, U.S. Senator Taryn Grant, uh, who thinks... Uh, was the one who set up the assassination attempt. Mm. And uh, they engage in what we call a deadly cat and mouse game that will keep the reader turning the pages up to the exciting climax. This long-running series shows no sign of losing steam. Mm. Great. That is pretty amazing for a star for the 25th or 28th book. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's very, very impressive. But um, Sanford just really knows his market, really knows his readers, and gives them exactly what they want. At number four, we have The Hellfire Club by Jake Tapper. Uh, that may be a familiar name to those of you who watch CNN. He's their chief Washington correspondent. Right. This is his fiction debut. It is, unsurprisingly, a political thriller uh, set during the McCarthy era. Our review says it's intriguing, if uneven, and a uh, New York seat in the House of Representatives becomes vacant upon its occupant's mysterious death, and there's some backstage maneuvering to try and find the right person to fill it. Um, and unfortunately, that ends up being a Columbia University academic mm. who uh, is more pawn than player in the political chess game. We say that Tapper, whose intimate knowledge of Washington is undeniable, initially spends more time building up the communist hunting ambiance of the 1950s than developing mm. the plot. But once Martyr closes in on a secret society and its tentacles within the government, the action picks up. So fans of well-researched historicals will be rewarded by this one. And finally, uh, another thriller down at number 11, uh, Shattered Mirror. This is an Eve Duncan novel, and this is the 22nd book in Johansson's series. Uh, Duncan is a forensic sculptor Mm. uh, who uh, makes models based on human remains and tries to figure out who they belong to and uh, what happened to them. And this one, this book involves a box containing a severely burned skull that presents a tantalizing puzzle. Our view says uh, this novel is intriguing, and uh, there's also a subplot involving eerie yet convincing ESP experiences along the twisty path to the truth. So fans of paranormal suspense will be rewarded by this one. Great. And that's what's happening on the hardcover fiction side. All right. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Craig Childs tells us how humans came to the Americas 13,000 years ago. We'll be right back. My name is Lauren Hilgers. I'm the author of Patriot Number One, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Craig Childs on the line. His new book is Atlas of a Lost World Travels in Ice Age America. Hello, Craig. So glad you could join us. Hi, you guys. Thanks. So the focus of your book is on how the first migrants came to the Americas during the late Ice Age. Tell us, who were they? Well, they were more than one kind of people coming from one direction. It was actually, it was, it was more in, in waves of, uh, of people arriving by coast, most likely, that there were, uh, there were Paleolithic boat travelers coming in along the uh, land bridge coast and down from Alaska to BC into the rest of North America. And then later, there were people who were coming across the land bridge that was exposed when sea levels were down, and they were coming into North America from uh, from Alaska and Canada. But then there are also smaller arrivals from different directions. There's evidence of uh, Paleolithic people who arrived from Spain and Europe on the East Coast and probably died out, but they left they left artifacts. So so it it's not just one one group of people; it's many. I'm a big science fiction fan, and I love alternate history, so I immediately have this idea of what if those migrants had survived? What affected which groups uh, did well in their new home and which ones did not? Oh, yeah. The the, the possible outcomes are, are interesting to think about because the you look at the, the weapons, um, you know, the spear points that, that different people used, and you can identify these different groups. And, and But the question is... How did these weapons uh, get moved across the continent and influence other people? That that you can imagine um, people coming from Asia and finding weapons left by people from Europe and picking them up and going, "Huh, this is an interesting design. What if I incorporated that into into my design?" And you you see that you see different different people affecting each other you know, thirteen to twenty thousand years ago. So, so tell us about a couple of the groups that you you studied. Uh, uh, maybe one from Europe and one from uh, Asia. Well, I, I looked at uh, it. Well, I have to say first that that um, there isn't a lot left from the Ice Age. Uh, I, I'm guessing that ninety percent of of what people left behind is gone, has washed away in rivers and been buried. So you're you're gleaning from uh, this this uh, thin smattering of artifacts where you can tell people were here but you don't necessarily find their their bones that would that would give you DNA um, you're you're finding their artifacts but enough to uh, enough to say a, a little bit about them like looking at the people who would have entered by boat um, they were they were probably using skin boats and and because this is so long ago the the skin boats wouldn't have survived so there's no evidence of that what there's evidence of is uh people traveling into places you can only get by boat and the tools that they were using the the spear points are of a a certain style that that look like the the same points being used in Kamchatka and Japan and the Korean peninsula so you can you can see that 
these people were using this this continuous coastline. Um, you know, it's not continuous anymore now that that the land bridge is under. But it used to be one coast from Sumatra to Alaska to Chile, and and so people were moving up and down this coast and leaving sites all the way to to the southern tip of South America, and. Uh, about the same time, or maybe even even older, uh, on the East Coast around Maryland, Virginia, um, in Chesapeake Bay, there were people using tools that that looked very much like the tools being used across the Atlantic in in Spain and France. And so, these people were probably um, ice flow hunters who either accidentally ended up in North America or just hunted their way across and. And, and landed on shores where I, I imagine people were already here. Um, so you, you have these different groups coming in from different directions and encountering each other. Uh, but who they were, what languages they spoke, those are, those are the elements that are hard to tease out. And you also mentioned some of the animals that were around at the time. Uh, you described them as from all sizes, from voles and falcons to some of the largest mammals seen during eras of human evolution. Tell us a little bit about that and about this landscape that these travelers were coming through. Yeah, a lot of this book is, is about the animals because this, this was in a... a in a way, the biggest experiment in in human or animal history on Earth, where one side of the planet had no people, uh, where where the old world, Eurasia, Africa, uh, there were humans and hominids for millions of years, but on this side of the planet, there weren't. People arrived very late in the game, and so they were arriving into an animal landscape, which in the Ice Age was a landscape of gigantic animals, because in in cold environments, animals get larger to conserve their heat, and uh, and so they got up to you know you'd have a 13 ton mammoth, uh, you know that's that's um, sometimes up to to 14, 15 feet tall at the shoulder and wow. 13 foot long tusks. So this is this is the world that that people are entering on this side. They're there are saber-toothed cats. There's a there's an American lion, which is a, a 500-pound panther. So, wow. so they're walking into a brawl of giant animals. That's amazing. And when we say ice age, we sort of picture ice everywhere. But what was the climate, the weather actually like? I mean, that's it must have varied quite a a bit throughout the Americas. Yeah, the big ice cap at its at its peak um, about. 20,000 years ago took up about half of North America so so almost all of Canada was under ice and and ice is coming down to to New York it's covering Chicago but then you go south of the ice sheet and and it's it's all exposed terrain it's um uh, like I was looking at a, a site in Texas with, with uh, human material 15,500 years ago, and the place is relatively unchanged. It had the same oaks, the same creeks and streams and springs, and and uh, so it's not it's not that the whole continent is covered with ice. It's a cooler continent, um, and it's it's different in some ways. Florida, for instance, was twice the size of what it is now because C 
sea levels were down by about three or four hundred feet, and so the continental shelf was exposed. And Florida was more savanna-like, mm. so it was akin to um, an ice age Kenya, except it had pine trees. <laughs> what what I found fascinating was that you you followed this. You 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 took the tour yourself uh, and kind of followed in their footsteps. Tell us about that. Yeah, I wanted to get on the ground and see what they saw, um, because the besides the places that were buried in ice, the the landscape really hasn't changed since the ice age. The you know different plants, different animals, but still the same mountains in the same places, the same rivers, and and I figured if if I went out there, I could travel some of the distances they would have traveled and see the land in the way they saw it, you know, use my imagination to put everything back in, but see the same shapes. And so I ended up um, crossing an ice field in Alaska to get a sense of what it's like to to move across ice with a group. Um, I got friends together, traveling companions, and we, we loaded up, headed across crevasses and, and these 700 square miles of, of ice. Or I, I was writing about what it would have been like to, to enter the coast during the Ice Age, um, but I made sure to do it with, with children, because I knew that you know, if you're going to write about migration, you can't just have a bunch of explorers out on the ice. You've you got to have kids. You've got to have families. And so I traveled uh, along the coast of, of uh, south-central Alaska in kayaks mm. and um, you know, partly uh, catching fish and, and digging up clams and living off the land, but also, uh, you know, juice boxes. And, you know, we had a, we had a five kids from four years old to 12 years old. Uh, and, and an interesting aspect to it is that we're in big bear country. And so we're making decisions based on, on the megafauna that's alive now. Hmm. And I can look back and say, well, this is what it would have been like to have kids and, uh, and live among big cats on the coast. So I, I'm applying everything that I can to the landscape itself and putting myself in the experience as, as close as I can get without a spear and loincloth. Were there any scary moments? Oh, there were always scary moments. <laughs> I, um, being in a, I, I don't know if it was it was scary, but being we were pinned down in a whiteout uh, for days on the on the ice sheet, and uh, it, it wasn't necessarily scary, but you're definitely you don't you lose all sense of reference you know, for days. You can't see a single thing, and and we headed out with GPS. Uh, we we had gear in our sleds, and we're skiing out into it, um, but you had no sense of where you were. Uh, you're just inside of a, a blowing bubble of snow. Uh, I, there were many little moments. Uh, I, I wrote about Florida and and uh, and what was happening there 15,000 years ago. And I was to do this. I was taking a kayak uh, with, a, with a couple friends through these backwoods rivers south of Tallahassee. And I've never traveled in Florida. And and snakes are hanging from the trees and alligators are, are plunging into the water and, and going underneath your kayak, which is, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm looking at that and saying, okay, what would it have been like to be here 15,000 years ago because these same alligators were here, but also this is the highest concentration of, of dire wolves and saber-toothed cats on the continent. So I'm getting a little bit of taste of fear, but not Ice Age fear. So I grew up in Florida, so I know this. I've, I've been canoeing. Uh, and and you're right. There is something about Florida that, that uh, you, you know, to me, we've, you know, we've always joked that there was it did seem prehistoric, uh, quote unquote, the lizards, the alligators, the uh, the palmetto trees, the, you know, the scrub pine, you know, the uh, 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 pine trees and, and the, yeah. uh, the sand. So so tell me a little bit about what you discovered there. And are there any were there any remnants? it's there uh, of of any of these of these uh, people well Florida is is a major location for this um, uh, so much is being found in the in the sinkholes of, of human mm. artifacts uh, spears and and uh, and tools made out of bone or ivory uh, made out of mammoth mastodon ivory um, so, so the human presence is very strong in Florida, and it, it goes right off the land and into the Gulf. Uh, researchers who are following the rivers underwater, seeing the old channels, are, are going underwater and looking for the same kind of landscapes that they see on land where they find artifacts. And underwater, they're finding thousands of, of artifacts from the Ice Age. Uh, you know, they're able to determine where, where camps are out there. And for me, going to Florida was, in a way, it was the most exotic place because I, I know Alaska and I know these these wild, rugged places. And I thought, well, Florida, that'll be interesting. <laughs> and yeah, the the snakes hanging from trees that was a, <laughs> that was a different experience for me. And and it is a it's a primeval landscape. The the rivers are unlike rivers that I'm familiar with. I mean, I, I, I guided uh, rivers for years in the southwest, you know, the big canyons. And and in Florida, the the rivers, they just some places disappear. They just go into a hole in the ground and you're you're carrying your, your kayak over your shoulder through the woods looking for another hole where the river comes back out. And for me, it was a perfect place to get a sense of what it's like to enter a landscape you don't know. Because you know, we'd tell people, yeah, we're going down the river, we're going to the Gulf, and they would say, oh, yeah, that doesn't work. And <laughs> say, what do you mean? All rivers lead to the sea, right? <laughs> Not in Florida. <laughs> we're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Craig Childs, author of Atlas of a Lost World, Travels in Ice Age America. So you've talked about the ice sheet, about um, being up, up north in the, the whiteout, and you've talked about being down in Florida. What about some of the spaces in between? Did you do an entire like, cross-continent trip, or were you doing a bunch of separate ventures? I was doing a bunch of separate ventures, and each one... Uh trying to trying to understand that landscape as thoroughly as possible from uh from both the the ice age perspective and from now uh what what's happening now on the surface uh one of the one of the areas was 
white sands in Nevada or in sorry in in southern New Mexico, and we uh, we set off across the desert that used to be grasslands, and and I was looking at it from an ice age perspective, seeing where where mammoths have been found and where human spear points have been found, but I'm also looking out across this expanse and saying, okay, right over there on the horizon is the the Trinity site, which is where the mm-hmm. first atomic bomb in human mm-hmm. history was detonated. And then eight miles away from that site is the largest Clovis hunting camp known in the western in Western North America. And and just looking looking out there saying, okay, these are two you know, weapons camps that are thirteen thousand years apart and and why are they why are they close together? What is what what is the relationship between what we're doing now and and what humans did thirteen thousand years ago? So I'm these are questions I'm asking as I'm looking across all these different regions from I, I traveled um, across part of Lake Superior in the winter with a, a toboggan harness to me and and wrote about what was happening there 12,000 years ago during a, a thousand year long cold spell. So I'm, I'm going out to all these places and doing a journey there in place and then weaving it together in the book. And you must have been thinking about the future, too. I, obviously, you're very concerned with climate and how climates change. Were you also trying to think 13,000 years ahead to how these landscapes might change again? Yeah, very much. Because it, it, may, be, it may seem simple, but, but for me, 13,000 years ago means there will be a 13,000 years ahead. And... It, it's it's easy to get stuck in this one moment of today, but by looking so far out in the past, you're looking equally forward into the future and, and asking the same questions, saying, well, how much have we changed as a species? Uh, are we doing the same things we were doing during the Ice Age, but just with new tools and, and greater numbers? Um, or Or has... Has something changed about us? And and um, you know, in, in many ways, I'm I'm concluding that that we haven't really changed that much. We've we've changed our materials, but we we still are this fundamental species. And and uh, we we are making some of the same mistakes. You know, I'm looking back at the Ice Age, saying if they knew they were killing off the last of these animals, the last big. You know the the mastodons, the giant bison, the the giant ground sloth. Would they have stopped? Mm. And I, you know, I doubt it. What are some of the other things you learned by following in the footsteps of these early explorers and trying to fit your head into their mindsets? Well, each each place I I learned um, uh, how to how to navigate. Uh, how how to how to work with the landscape in in particular i think i i learned that that um our perception of distance and the ability to to move across landscapes is is really hampered because we think in terms of cars and airplanes and and you know i do plenty of that kind of travel but when you're out on the ground moving 
on foot. You're watching a, a mountain peak come up over the horizon and then come to you as you walk to it and then disappear behind you over the horizon. And you, you realize that, oh, this, this is a very human way of moving. We've moved hundreds of miles, thousands of miles easily without, without these, these modern constructs. And, and so I, I came to understand better how, how much humans could move on the land. And as I, I looked at how rocks were moved around in the Ice Age, you know, where they would go to pick up good tool stone and then where they would drop it, 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 was, it was clear that if you wanted a good rock, you would easily walk 300 miles out to get it and bring it back 300 miles. So a 600-mile round trip to the corner store to get your, your resources was, was part of their world. So I see this continent, the, the whole continent, as a playing field that, that uh, I, I believe people could have been moving from coast to coast in, in their lifetimes because you see the distribution of rock and you know that they were they were really moving out there so what how, how did the book idea come to you i mean uh uh first of all about the uh about this migration during the ice age and the second part what made you at what point in the uh, writing or research did you decide for the book that you needed to 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 follow the the journey of many of these people well the the book started in a, a lot of places. It just is built up over over the last fifteen years or so. I I think it it first came to me when I was working at an excavation in southern Colorado, and we were down deep in a cave, um, way out of range of, of daylight, and and my job was to excavate a, a an ice age camel, and and this camel had died in the cave before humans arrived. Um, but not that long before, and and so as I, I spent two seasons working on this camel, just um, you know, down with my headlamp in this crack, scratching at its uh, at its skull with little metal tools, thinking, this animal was here at a time when there were no humans. This you know, this this whole side of the world was was a. Uh, was was having a completely different experience on the other side of the world and what was that like and then what was that moment like where they where humans spilled in and originally i thought i'll i'll write a book book on this by staying at this cave and i'll write the whole thing from the cave i'll spend a winter here living in the mouth of this cave which would have been awful <laughs> uh, it would have been cold and dank the whole time and and just over the years, as I put things together, I, I saw landscapes where I thought, no, I don't want to be in this cave. I want to be in Alaska looking at it in person. I want to mm-hmm. be actually out there feeling the visceral impact of the land. And, and so just over the years, it, it developed into a, a bigger and bigger project of, of um, going out and actually following these migrations. What were some of the favorite things that you learned or that you went into it expecting one thing and came out of it with your mind completely changed, your understanding of these early peoples completely changed? Well, I, in one way, um, I didn't know who these humans were. I, I, I guess somewhere in my head I have the the same had the same thought that, that probably many had about the Ice Age, that these were these were cave people. Um, 
you know, grunting, monosyllabic spear throwers who who uh, were were somehow way beneath us intellectually, and we yeah, realized that that oh, these these were humans just like us. In fact, their their brains were five percent larger than our brains are now, and and uh, they had they would have had languages. And you look at their their tools and their burial rituals, and and you realize that that these people are basically us. They're not that different, and so so they become they became much more personal to me, um, much more real. And you know, fine little details about their lives started coming out where uh, I. I always, for some reason, I have I carry this this uh, little bag of red ochre in my in my backpack, and I've been carrying it for 20 years. I scratched it out of a rock formation in the Grand Canyon, and it 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 makes a good pigment that you can you can paint with. And um, and it turns out that that this red ochre is the same material that people were carrying in the Ice Age, and that shows up in their their burial sites and at, at uh, ritual sites, and uh, and they had ice age ochre mines where they were extracting ochre from the ground and and painting their weapons with it and and you know i look back at my pack and go oh my god i've been carrying this same material and painting things with it uh for for years and i wonder if uh this is just what i i'm doing what they did without even knowing it that that there is this there's this very basic way of moving on the land and picking up a rock and going, hey, this is this is a nice rock. I'm going to carry it around with me. The same rocks they were carrying around with them. So um, it it was interesting to see how how we are them. That's probably the most surprising conclusion I came to myself. Every time I go to the beach, I pick up pretty rocks and I take them home with me and I don't even know why. And now I'm going to know that it's something that came down to me from these these early ancestors. Yeah, yeah, we, we're, uh, we're carrying around the same genes, the same, and I think the same desires in many ways. We've just, uh, we've... We've just replaced them with with uh, vehicles and buildings, but we still have this this need to reach down on the ground and pick something up and say, "Oh, beautiful! I'm going to carry this with me." If there's one thing that you'd like people to know about these early humans uh, in the Americas that you think is just not popular knowledge uh, or that people aren't aware of, what what would that be? Huh? That's a good question. Um, I mean, like I like I said before, that the, they aren't cave people is is a uh, is one of the the big messages that I want to convey in in this book. That, uh, that we I think we really we look at the past and and people are blank. They don't have definition to us, and we just assume that this moment is the only real moment and. And that's something that I want readers to carry away from this book is to to realize that every moment has been a real moment going back forever and going into the future forever, which I I think helps us get our bearings. It helps us with context um, to to sit down with uh, 
with a stone and work it into a spear point, you learn how precise they had to be. And that's you know, something I did for this book. I learned from, from a flint napper how to, how to make these, these ancient tools. And, and you see their hands. You see their, their minds, their, their ways of being. And, and that's, I, I want to I take this one-dimensional past and, and make it real. We've been talking with Craig Childs, and you can find his book, Atlas of a Lost World, Travels in Ice Age America, in stores right now. Craig, thank you so much for joining us. This has been wonderful. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese talks about the recent Authors Guild legal settlement. So stay tuned. Hello, this is Elaine Weiss. I'm the author of The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is here to tell us all about the recent Authors Guild legal settlement. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Rose. Hello, Mark. What a treat to have you back so soon. This time you're here as PW's legal expert. Give us the rundown of the settlement and why it's interesting. Sure. So this has been a long time coming. So the, the settlement is in a case called In Ray Literary Works and Electronic Databases, and it's better known as freelance. People just called it freelance. But how people might really know it is this is the follow-on class action case filed by freelance writers that came after the Tassini versus New York Times uh, Supreme Court case in 2001. Actually, that case was New York Times versus Tassini. Uh, but that case, one publisher has colorfully called it the uh, the original sin of the digital publishing era. Um, our listeners may know in that case, freelance writers sued the New York Times and other publishers for selling their articles, which they had written as freelancers for the newspapers, onto electronic databases like LexisNexis, etc. And ultimately, in 2001, the Supreme Court ruled that they needed permission to sell those on. So the New York Times uh, and publishers were faced with uh, a dilemma. They had to either go back and pull all of the articles for which they didn't have digital rights from these digital databases, potentially millions of articles, or they had to pay these writers and get their permission. So this class action mm. in freelance, which was filed in 2001 after the Supreme Court case, was designed to rectify that. And 17 years later, uh, just last week, the checks were finally mailed. Wow. Uh, to the writers in that case. So that's what they did. Instead of pulling it from the databases, <laughs> they're like, we're going to, you know, let's just write the checks. You know, and it's a very effective way to settle yeah. claims like this for yeah. class action is because the writers themselves don't have the wherewithal of the resources to go and sue the New York Times or any syndicate who might have republished their 500 word article from years ago. Um, you've got thousands and thousands of writers, potentially millions of articles. So they needed a way to sort of try to get some compensation. Uh, on the other hand, the publisher needed complete peace. They needed to know that they were no longer going to be liable for this stuff, uh, mm -hmm. that they weren't going to be facing infringement claims in the future. So class action is the way they did this. But I think it's fair to say that after 17 years of wrangling, that class action is an unwieldy beast when it comes to copyright claims. So so tell us who, who wins out in this and, and what, what are we looking at? The publishers clearly win out at this. And I'll tell you why. Because in the final analysis... Just twenty five about twenty five hundred writers ended up getting checks. 
And there are, are thousands and thousands of authors out there, but many of them probably didn't know or didn't care or didn't get involved with the case to register for it. And Lord, they probably forgot about it after 13 years. Since, sure. Right. Like, it, 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 it's been some, some time. Um, but in the end, the final analysis, what publishers got for about just over $9 million, when you factor in attorney's fees and everything, closer to $15 million. They got a release of liability. We're talking 38 to 40 publishers got a release from liability for these millions of articles in their electronic databases, which mm. they are now free to use unless they were instructed to pull them out. Mm. So that's pretty effective. Yeah. That's, a, that's a pretty good deal for the publishers. You know, 17 years later to you know, be able to, to get those, that many releases for that little amount of money. Do we have an idea as to what a payout might have been for for an average uh, 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 freelancer? Maybe, you know, running ten, fifteen articles in the Times. Yeah, no, a we year? we don't we don't know, and here's why: it's a fairly calculated, fairly complex analysis. And the calculation was made. There were three different kinds of claims, right? You had A, B, and C claims. The right. A claims were for writers who published longer works and registered their copyrights immediately. So think of somebody who's writing for the New York Times magazine, does a 15,000-word piece, does three or four of them a year, and owns the copyrights, registers the copyrights, gets paid. That was what the A claims were. Those were pretty strong claims. They had all kinds of damages that they were possible for, so they got the most money. Uh, only a handful of those. B claims were people who registered their copyrights after the fact, they got a smaller amount of money. And then the C claims, and this is what really delayed the resolution of this case. The C claims were people who may have written hundreds and hundreds of these articles, but didn't register the copyrights because what freelance writer registers a copyright? I was going to say, I've like, I've been, yeah. I've been freelancing a long time. You know, I started freelancing, uh, writing reviews for PW 16 years ago. It would not have occurred to me to register the copyright That's on, right. on my reviews and, and, or that it was, that was even a thing I could do. And virtually no one did. And no one was really looking out. So the, one of the things that took this 17 years to resolve was that there were a group of objectors when the initial settlement was approved in 2005 who stood up and said, hey, you're screwing those of us with unregistered copyright claims here. You're not giving us enough money and you're, you're sort of washing us out here. And we're the most we're 99 percent of the claims here. Right. So right. they brought a, they brought uh, an objection to the court. The court brushed them aside. So they appealed it to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And in 2007, the Second Circuit shocked everybody because they came back and ruled that, well, these unregistered copyrights can't get paid at all because we don't. the court doesn't have the power to pay people who don't have registered copyrights. Technically, you have to register your copyright in order to be, avail yourself of legal action. So here you had these uh, objectors who were trying to get more money for people with unregistered copyrights. Mm -hmm. And the appeals court sitting back said, actually, you don't get anything at all. And what really made everyone upset is that no one had argued this. The publishers hadn't argued it. The defendants, the plaintiffs, the objectors, right. everyone, nobody had argued this. The court just came up with it on its own. And that put everybody in a really interesting position. They all went to the Supreme Court together, all sides, to argue that that, that ruling at the appeals court should be overturned. And they won at the Supreme Court. They, wow. they wow. fought to get the settlement wow. reinstated only so right. they could kill it again on the merits. Right. Which wow. they did. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. In 2011, they went back to the court and they ended up killing this thing on the merits. And interesting tidbit, in killing the freelance settlement, they also killed the Google settlement because the court in that ruling said, well, there's you have to have more classes here. Uh, and if that applied to the Google settlement, well, you couldn't possibly have enough classes and all those millions of scanned books. So they did a little 
collateral damage. Wow. Um, wow. But in the end, they ended up finally uh, just getting separate counsel for the C-Class, the people with unregistered copyrights. Right. They hammered out a new settlement agreement in 2014. Who, who is it who 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 had the uh, the first right the uh, the A or what, not the C rights but the the, uh, the A's so yeah. yeah the yeah. the claims with the registered yeah. copyrights you know it's a very very small we have not been told who these people are and I haven't even been able to get a breakdown yet of how many claims right. uh, were in A B and C categories I'm hoping to get that at some point uh, but we do know the authors guild did confirm that there were a handful of writers out there who got. Uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars wow. settlements. Wow. Yes. Uh, and there was a larger section in the middle who got a very nice surprise check after 13 years. You know, you know, four figures. You wow. Say, you know, definitely in the thousands of dollars. Wow. Wow. And so how does the Authors Guild, uh, how, how are they taking this? What is this? Well, the Authors Guild is, is claiming this. Now, it's interesting because the Authors Guild is really sort of out front on this. Right. But I think it's, it's worth noting here that it was the National Writers Union that really took the lead on this. Mm. The National Writers Union was the Jonathan Tassini in the original right, case. Right, right. He was the president of the National Writers Union. Mm. And one of our own here, Sonia Jaffe Robbins, our, our copy right. editor for many years, yeah. was an original plaintiff in that case. Um, wow. And there were three class actions that were actually filed by the Authors Guild, the National Writers Union, and uh, I think the American Society for Journalists and Authors. They, right. Those were all consolidated into one case. Got it. The Authors Guild is portraying this as like, it's been a long road, but we won. Here's your money. The National Writers Union is like, this is an example of how writers are still getting screwed. Um, so, uh, um, interesting. I don't think... And, and I would agree with, with both of those. It's, it was, yeah. a long, was a long road. It's good to see that some writers got money. But the problem with class action is, is it's no way to run a copyright system. Yeah. And we're 25 years after Tassini. We have a good idea of what the internet's going to do and is doing to the way we communicate our ideas. And we haven't taken any wax at really addressing the situation for writers and freelancers and creators uh, in any meaningful way. Copyright class action is useful for resolving past claims, but it doesn't do anything to fix how people are going to be compensated for their work going forward. Uh, And I think it's time we started focusing on that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, and I hope that you'll be back soon with a report on how we can fix copyright. It sounds like you've, you've got some ideas. Hey, anytime. I'm, I'm down for that, for sure. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a Publishing News Week in Review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Tessa Fontaine, author of The Electric Woman, a memoir in death-defying acts. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 